I ask you this morning as we begin to imagine with me a child born into a family, a son. And this son is born into a family that has all they need. In fact, limitless resources for caring and providing for this child born into the family. The father of this son gives him all that he could possibly need, including instruction and guidance to live a proper and good life. Yet, after only a few years, this son not only begins to ignore his father's wishes, he not only disregards his father's love, but he even denies that his father is indeed his father. And he lives his life as if he doesn't even know his father and cuts all ties with him. What kind of son could do that? To have a father who gives him everything, provides him with all that he could ever want, And then the son completely turns his back upon his father and so quickly denies him to the world. Well, today we're going to look at a case that God brings before us of just such a son and what the father offers that child. Now I remind you that we are engaged in a study from the Scriptures entitled The Fundamentals of Forgiveness. And because of the lack of understanding among so many in churches today, we had to begin with a consideration of what we called the essence of forgiveness, dealing with the basics at the core or the heart of the matter and seeking to answer the question that many don't even think of today, forgiveness from what? People need the forgiveness of God. And they don't even put that together. They don't even recognize it as such. It is the forgiveness of God that men need. And when Christ came and dealt with men that he was with on this earth, He spoke not of their greatest needs as being wealth or even health. We remember that paralyzed one that was lowered in front of him in that home. And he did not first say to that man, wow, you need to be healed, be healed. The first thing he said was, your sins are forgiven you. That is man's greatest need. His fundamental need from God is the forgiveness of of sins. And so we took some time to see what the Bible calls sin and how it is manifested in virtually all of us. Sin is the breaking of his law according to 1 John 3:4. The breaking of his law. Sin is the turning from our faith to do other things that God is displeased with. All of these things we saw from the Scriptures. 
But now we are currently looking at our next major area in the study, turning from the essence of forgiveness, the definition of sin that needs to be forgiven, to the existence of forgiveness. All of God's doings, all of God's work, all of the work of His Son Jesus to forgive men of their sins. And under our first subheading here, which we've entitled God or Christ's Alacrity to Forgive, there's that word. You kids remember what alacrity means? It means his willingness, his eagerness to forgive. And we've seen here in this first look at his alacrity, a depiction of God in the scriptures. And I must confess that I've had a great opportunity in the last two weeks to open up two wonderful passages from the Psalms. Two passages that men preach on often. I believe the first one we said that Spurgeon preached no less than ten times from Psalm 103, where we saw from that text the picture of God who pardons our iniquities, that He does not deal with our sin as He even should, but rather He deals with our sin with pity as a father has compassion on his child. So God has pity upon his children and delivers them from the pit and delivers and removes their transgression as far as the east is from the west. We also saw from the Psalms last Lord's Day, Psalm 130. And here we saw the declaration of forgiveness from God. That God does not mark our iniquities. For if he took track of all of our iniquities and was picking on us every time and waiting for us to sin, none could stand in his judgment. We would all be guilty before God. But rather, he deals with us in a forgiving manner that he may be feared, the text said. When you fear to offend God, you will strive to live for Him. Today, I have another great passage from the Scriptures, one that is a real picture of where we have been in our study regarding the multitude of our sin and where we are going in our study regarding the existence of the forgiveness of God, showing the magnitude of our sin and the magnificence of the forgiving nature of God. So today I ask you to turn again to the Old Testament as we will see the offer of God to cleanse us from our sins. Please look at Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Having seen the picture of the God who pardons our iniquity, the declaration of the forgiveness from God in the Scriptures, today the offer of God to cleanse us from our sins. If you would, please look at verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 1 as we begin by seeing 
the opening arguments from God. And that will become clearer as we go through this text. The opening arguments from God. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah and Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And here we have what God says. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, For the Lord speaks. For the Lord speaks. Let me just say right here. These are the words of God. This is Jehovah speaking. Now here's the problem that many people have today. They hear men speak and talk to them about the gospel or talk to them about God. They hear preachers and preachers say things. And many times what they'll say is, ah, that's just your opinion. That's just what you think. That's just what you say. And unfortunately, in many churches that people would go to today, they're right. The preacher is just giving his opinion. He's telling a story or a joke. But when you turn to the Bible and you turn to see A passage like this that says, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. And you know that word, Lord, with the capital L and small O-R-D, or small capital O-R-D, means Yahweh, Jehovah. This is Jehovah God of the Bible speaking. This is God presenting His case. You are listening not to the words of a preacher. You are listening to the words of God. The Lord speaks. What a great opportunity and privilege is ours to have the word of God. Trustworthy. Preserved for you and me. Supernaturally by the Holy Spirit throughout the years. And here is the Lord speaking to us from the passage. Now notice what he says in the second portion of verse 2. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. That he brought them forth and he brought them up. Now we will find that he is indeed speaking of the nation of Israel. But he addresses them and calls them sons as if they were the very children of God. For it is God who brought them forth. God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees. God initiated the calling of the nation of Israel. He called Abraham, provided for him, cared for him, gave him the sons and the grandsons that would become the fathers in Israel. God initiated. God did it. God brought them forth and reared them, provided for them, cared for them. He is the one who was the the one who birthed them and cared for them to this very present hour. And think 
as those of you who know the Old Testament Scriptures, think of all of the things that God did for the nation of Israel. How many ways He cared for them. How many mighty miracles He showed to them. Remember when He parted the Red Sea and they were able to go through as on dry land to escape the Egyptians. All the plagues that He brought the Egyptians. All the ways that He provided for them in the wilderness wandering. All of the things that God did to show Himself a loving Father to this nation, a loving father, to this son, as he calls them, this son. And he blessed them in every way. Yet, it says, they have rebelled against me. They've revolted, rebelled against God. That is just what Adam and Eve did. They rebelled against their very creator very simple law that god had given them very simple directive don't eat from the tree and yet they rebelled they thought that they knew better they thought that they were better capable of caring for themselves or doing whatever they thought they knew and this is what israel did they rebelled they rejected the wisdom of God, the guidance of God, the provision of God, and they went and followed other gods, false gods. They became idolaters. They worshipped at false idols. And so he says to them, they revolted against me. Now you must remember that Isaiah is writing this towards the end of the history of the nation of Israel. It was shortly before they were taken captive that Isaiah was writing these things. Shortly before they were taken by Babylon that Isaiah writes this to the nation of Israel. And they would indeed go on further for years and I'll mention that in a few moments but this was really almost at the end of the history of this great nation. And he's about to show them in the following passages All of the ways that they have turned from him. All of the things that they had done against him in their rebelliousness. But here he's just giving the opening salvo. He's giving the opening argument. You've rebelled against me. You've turned from me. I could not help as I was doing the preparation and the study in this text and thinking of the great privilege that Israel had from God. The great many blessings that He had given to them. All the things that He had shown them. I could not help but think how similar our nation has been. Blessed of God from the very beginning. Blessed of God in every way. Cared for provided for, led in the things of God, as even our laws were founded on the words and the teachings of the Scripture. Again, not to say that every single founding father of America was a born-again believer, but many were. And it shows in our history, it shows in our law and our documents, all this great privilege we had, and so quickly, we have turned against the teaching of God to the place where we are today that sodomite marriage 
is the law of the land. That murder in the womb is protected by the government and profited by hacks that call themselves doctors. This is how far we have come. So now, he, after giving his opening argument, he goes on to show all of the ways, or at least many of the ways, that the nation of Israel has rebelled against him. Look at verse 4. He says, Alas, sinful nation. And he says that they are weighed down with iniquity. He's showing the utter condemnation of their sins. And here he says, you don't even know me. They're weighed down with iniquity. They're an offspring of evildoers. What he's saying there is you're just like your fathers who rejected me. Just as they rebelled against me, you are rebelling against me. You're a nation that is sinful and weighed down with iniquity. You are sons who act corruptly. You have abandoned the Lord. You have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned away from Him. So many things He shows them. And I back up to see in verse 3 that because of all of this, it's as if they didn't even know Him. He says, An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. You know what? He said an ox knows its owner. This is a beautiful picture of, of what happens with animals. Many of you know this to be the case. Some of you have had or even now have pets. And some of you, I know, have more than one pet. And that pet comes to know you. And in some cases which was my experience, my particular cat would only know me. Anybody else came to the house and he hid. The only one in the house that he showed any affection to practically was me. That was it. He knew me and he didn't know anyone else. But my cat knew me. My cat knew me. I will never forget that when I was uh, pastoring in the panhandle, one of the men, Woodrow, had a lot of cattle. He had cattle all around in the, in the neighborhood. And one time I accompanied him out to feed his cattle. And we walked together out into the midst of the cattle. And the cattle all went to Woodrow and surrounded him. And if I got anywhere near, they got far away. They didn't want anything to do with me. They wanted Woodrow. Why is that? They knew him. He fed them. He cared for them. He was the one who took care of them when they were sick and possibly in many times was the one who was there when they were born. They knew him. And that's what God is saying. As an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger. In other words, where he would stay. An ox does that. A, a quote-unquote dumb animal does that. But you don't know me. 
You act as if you don't even know me. Your God, your Father, the one who gave you birth, the one who provided for you, the one who has kept you all of these years. You don't know me. You don't care. It's as though they have disowned their own father. Sure, they would call themselves the people of God. They would say, we're Israel. They would be very proud of that fact. But when it came time to actually knowing God and acknowledging God and His ways, it was as if they didn't never even heard of Him. They did not even know Him. That's what God says to them in verse 3. And again, the reason for this He gives in verse 4 and following. A sinful nation weighed down with iniquities. Offspring of evildoers, just like your fathers were. Then he speaks of them as acting corruptly and abandoning him. And this goes hand in hand with verse 3. They didn't even know him. They abandoned him. Sinful and weighed down. It means sinning continually. Telling them that they are corrupt. That they despise God. They despise the Holy One of Israel, the one who gave them birth and the one who gave them everything and the one who cared for them. They despise Him and they turn away from Him. Turned away from the Holy God. I promised myself that I would resist the temptation to bring some applications, but I can't. I can't help again but think of our own nation. Weighed down in sin in our day. But it's worse than that. What do you find in many churches today? In many churches today you find people who are supposedly Christian, but they act as if they do not know God when they're outside of church. They're weighed down in sin and iniquity. And they actually in their lives and in the ways that they work and move, deny God, despise God. It's like so many today in our nation and in our churches. But I move on quickly. Verse 9. Skip down to verse 9. Unless the Lord of hosts had left a few survivors. And there's the remnant I wanted to make sure that I mentioned. There are some who loved God from their hearts. There are some for whom this was not merely a ritual when they went to worship God and to sacrifice to God, as we'll see in a moment. There are some that he kept and preserved for himself. But the rest he compares to Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at what he says. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Here, once again, he says, the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ears to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Do you realize what an insult this would have been to the nation of Israel, comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah, comparing to them to those wicked, sinful cities that God rained down judgment upon? This would have been a very difficult thing to have 
God say to you and to have them here. Yet he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. But again, there were some who kept his ways. And I just say to us in this place, many, many churches are involved in uh, different things and different ways. And we may not fit in, but we must resist the temptation to turn to rituals or to have church to become a ritual, just an hour in which we go to put in our time, just a place that we're expected to be on Sunday morning at 1045. We must fight against ever believing that and ever living that. But rather we must strive to seek to honor God and to remain faithful. Because here's the result if you do not. Verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. That is an indictment against all they were doing in their so-called worship. Their worship had degenerated to mere going through the motions. Their worship had degenerated to a tradition with no heart. They were just doing religious stuff rather than worshiping God from their heart with the exception of that remnant that he spoke about. That remnant when they would bring their offerings. That remnant when they would go to the temple. That remnant when they would go to the synagogue. They were honoring God and faithful. But for the most part, it was just a tradition. A religious ritual. This is what God calls against them. They did not worship them from their heart. Now notice, they were doing it. They were religious. They had all this religious stuff. They were still doing all these things that God condemns them for. But they were not doing them from the heart. It's not that the festivals were wrong. It's not that the Sabbaths were wrong. It's not that their coming to appear before God was wrong. It's the way they were doing it. They weren't doing it from right hearts. They weren't doing it from hearts that honored and worshiped God. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 4 when he spoke about worshiping him in spirit and in truth. 
That's what God wants. Those are the worshipers that God wants. God does not want just people who show up at church. God wants worship from people whose hearts are changed. Whose hearts have been changed from the heart of stone to the heart of flesh. And so they worship Him in spirit. Worshiping God in spirit is not waving your arms and dancing around and falling in the front of the church. Worshiping God in spirit is worshiping Him from a heart that is alive and whose heart and spirit long for and long to please the living God. Israel was not doing that. And when Jesus says the Father demands worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth, It is a holding to, a consistent living by the Word of God. Looking at the Scriptures and living in accordance with the Word of God. Israel was not doing that. They had God, but they had Baals. They had all kinds of other idols and other quote-unquote God, small g, in their temple and in their lives. We are to worship God and God alone. And they were violating that. Even in their worship. They just did not worship Him from their hearts. Worthless worship. And God hated it. That's what He says. I hate your new moon festival. Can you get the picture of God in heaven with these people doing this without the right hearts and he's just going, Stop! It's worthless! It is not what you think it is! You think you worship me, but your hearts are far from me. You don't even know me. You don't care. You reject me. You live in sin. And then you come to church and worship. Is that not the indictment of the church of large today? Can you imagine God even now in heaven and what he thinks of these religious shows? where men are more interested in getting money for their bank accounts by so-called healings. And these religious shows where there's entertainment, and yet the, the teaching that I heard, even in schools that claim to be conservative, teach that the first thing you have to do to build a church is to have a good music program. Not the Word of God. Not a right spirit or a right heart. But a good music program to entertain the people. Whatever it takes to entertain and to woo and to get people to come to your church, that's what you need to do. If it's drama, if it's special music, choirs and all the frills and the stuff that's what it takes to get people to church today and if that's what they use to get people to church that's what they will continue to have to use 
and have to use week by week, make it more dramatic, make it more exciting, make it more entertaining to get more people and to keep the ones that they got. But God says that they need to worship in spirit and in truth. Right hearts and His Word. Conspicuously absent is good music or entertainment. Israel was going through the motions and God hated it. And I just cannot help but think in my heart and in my mind of what God thinks of the sham that is the church in so many places today. Little or no theology, the Word of God at best may be there. Once in a while, a verse might flash on the wall. But when it comes to opening up texts and passages, comparing Scripture with Scripture, and having systematic and biblical theology, it's non-existent. And what do you think God thinks of that? I say to you, for our part, we're a lot more interested in what God thinks than what men think. They did not worship Him from their hearts, and He hated it. Look at verse 15 now. As we see that even their prayers were an abomination. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Can you think of this right now? Think of what's going on in so many places. And they think that they're honoring God. I think of these priests and these guys with collars. And they're raising their hands and they offer these prayers. And they say these things. And they think that God will hear them for their many prayers. They mumble their prayers just like Muslims. And they think that God will hear their prayers. And God says, when you spread out your hands in prayers, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered in blood. Go back in not many pages. Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs 28. And look at verse 9. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Can you imagine that? You got all these people who hate God, all these people who want nothing to do with the law of God. And I always think of the TV news anchor when some disaster strikes And you know darn well this guy hates Christ, hates Christianity, and he says, Oh, our prayers will be with you. No, they won't. Because if your heart is not right, your prayers are an abomination. Go back to our text in Isaiah, forward a few pages. And he says that even if you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Their prayers were a sham and he says that he hides his face from them and he will not hear. Now God has laid out before them all of these things as I have laid these out before you. And I want to again remind you of what we saw in the first part of our study on the fundamentals of forgiveness. 
the essence of forgiveness is your sin. Your sin is what needs to be forgiven. And we saw time and time again that none of us measures up. None of us is good enough. All of us are sinners. God here lays out this case before the nation of Israel, saying, first of all, that they are not following him, that they've revolted against him, they don't know him, and all these other things. He's laid out his case. He's brought to their minds many, many truths regarding their sin, covering every spectrum of their lives. And yet, despite all this, look at verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. This is an amazing statement. He lays before them all their sin and iniquity and still says, Come to me. Now, oftentimes already I've said to you that he's laid out the case. He's laid out these facts before them. And here's the reason that I've been saying that. The language here when God says, come now, let us reason together. Many people might think of that as a couple of people sitting down at a conference table and, well, you present your side and I'll present my side and maybe we'll debate and maybe we'll come to some kind of a, an agreement, some kind of a reasoning. You know, we'll, we'll find common ground and all that. That's not what the word means. And that's not what's being said here. The language is that of him inviting them to attend a trial. And it's their trial. Come to this trial where we will decide, where we will judge, where we will argue our case against you. And where you will be judged. And we will lay before you convincing arguments to show your guilt. And that's exactly what God has done. It's like this. You ever see these TV shows or these movies or something like that? Where they build the case. All through the show. They gather the evidence. They do the forensic studies and scientific work and collect the evidence and collect statements and collect depositions and all of these things. And they've got all of this overwhelming evidence. And they call the perpetrator into the squad room, you know, put her in, put him in that little room where they shine the light on him. And they lay out all the evidence. And the evidence is airtight. Overwhelming. No possible way that they can get off. That's what God has done. He's laid out an airtight case. 
You rebelled against me. You've done all this sin and iniquity. You've wronged me in this area, and this area, and this area, and this area, and there's no question you're guilty. And he could send them to trial where they would receive the sentence of death. But instead, he gives them a plea bargain. He lays out all this evidence, and then he offers them if I can say it reverently, a deal. Come to the trial, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, though they are red like crimson, this is what he has laid out. There isn't any debate. There isn't any question. This is what you're like. He uses the terminology, scarlet and crimson as a picture of the deep, deep stain of sin, the doubled stain of sin, the stain of sin that has manifested itself upon them through all their years of sinning against him. It is the picture of one who is completely stained by sin. You can't see a speck of white. You can't see a speck of goodness. It's all red, crimson, and scarlet. All of it. Have you ever had, let's take Daniel's shirt here today, this deep purple shirt. Let's take this deep purple shirt, and you go and put it in the washing machine. You wash a shirt, and what happens to it? Because it is so stained with this color, manufactured in this color, the color does not normally wash out. Unless you put a lot of bleach in there, then it'll look pretty ugly. But even then it would still be ugly. It doesn't wash out. If you have a shirt that is red or crimson and you just put it in the laundry, it's still red and crimson. This is how stained You are with sin, according to God. Double stained. Impossible to get out through all the years of your sinning. Through all the years of your wickedness. The wool is so stained that it can't possibly be clean. I want you to know this. God is speaking to those who know that they are scarlet and crimson stained. He's calling for those who know that you're scarlet and crimson stained from sin. Come! Come. As Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners who knew that they were stained by sin. Sinners who knew the wickedness and the depth of their own depravity and immorality. I know I'm stained by sin. These are the ones that God is calling. And then he says that they will be made white as snow. They will be like wool. Though they had overwhelming 
stain, complete crimson and scarlet, every fiber colored in sin, he says to them, he can make them white. White as snow. I wasn't born in Florida, although I've lived most of my life here now. I was born in a state, let's say, that gets snow. And I've seen snow many times. And when it first comes down, and before cars go through it, and kids trudge through it, and other things, it's really white. Really white. Not raised on a farm, though, so I don't know much about the white wool. But this is what God says. That every single fiber that was stained will be white. He doesn't miss one small spot, but rather cleanses you from all the stain of your sin until you are white as snow, completely forgiven of your sin. Every fiber that was stained is now cleansed. He will not leave one dot, not one spot. He will cleanse you. The God of the Bible is a sin-cleansing God. We've set the case of all this sin. And you know in your own hearts, in your own lives, all your own sin. The sin that you committed yesterday or the day before. The sin that you committed this very day. God knows your heart and so do you. God says, I'll cleanse it. Every last spot. And that is the only way anyone will ever be able to go to heaven. Is if every sin is washed clean and you are able to stand white as snow in the presence of the living God. And there is only one way that that can happen. And that is through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ as he gave his life on the cross to pay for every single one of the sins of his children. Every one. That's where this all leads. I said to you, this is a kind of a picture of where we've been and points to where we're going. It all goes to the cross. The death of Christ cleansing us from our sin. In fact, I ask you at this time to turn in your Bibles to that passage that I read to you a little while ago from Matthew's Gospel and chapter 11. In Isaiah 1, as God says to them, Come now, let us reason together. We find here what our Lord Jesus says to the multitudes in verse, well, we began in verse 25. Let's skip down to to verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How does he give rest? Pardon for sin. Our rest 
is found in the forgiveness of our sins. Now back in the text that we were looking at, and you don't need to turn back there, but back in the text that we were looking at in Isaiah, he's called on them to wash themselves, make themselves clean, remove the evil of, of your deeds from my sight, Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Remove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. He's calling on them to do what? Repent. And here Jesus is saying, Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come! But you must be willing to take my yoke. Follow my ways. Turn from your evil. Wash yourself. Cleanse yourself from the sins. Repent, in other words. Just what Jesus called on in all of his ministry. Repent! And notice that Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And so he bids you to come if you are laden with sin. You know what the sad reality is? Most people aren't. Most people aren't weary or heavy laden from their sin. Most people don't feel the burden of their sin. Because pastors in pulpits today don't ever want to talk about sin. Pastors today never warn men to flee from the wrath of God or the judgment of God. They just encourage them to be a little bit better and do good and help one another, love your neighbor, go out there and have a good time. We are to flee from the wrath of God. It is God who calls us to repent and be forgiven of our sins. Sad thing is that many, many people are not weary and heavy laden anymore. They don't feel the burden of their sin. But if there are some here today who understand what that means, and you look back on your life and you see the wickedness and the sin that has plagued you through all your life, I tell you on the basis of what God Himself said, the Lord says, that's what we read in Isaiah, Come, though your sins are as scarlet or crimson, I will make them white as snow, white as wool. God promises to cleanse you from your sins. And only as you are cleansed from your sins will you have a place in heaven. I urge you, Go to Him today and know the cleansing of your sin. Let's pray.